I distinctly remember a policeman removing his weapon from the holster. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. And I'm Sean McIver. What do Blind Lemon Jefferson, Edie Brickell, and the Toadies all have in common? How did a rundown stretch of warehouses in the shadow of downtown Dallas become not once, but twice the live music capital of the state of Texas? Today, we take a look at the amazing musical history of Deep Ellum, Dallas's greatest live music scene. But before we start, I'd like to say that my favorite coastal spot is South Padre Island, where they made the movie The Legend of Billie Jean. I'm kind of partial to the Texas City Dyke, which was featured in Terms of Endearment. And I like Surfside Beach, which is near Port Arthur. And where was Surfside Beach featured? I guess in the Hurricane Ike coverage on CNN. So Scott, can you tell us a little about the early history of Deep Ellum? What we know of today is Deep Ellum was a part of Dallas, just east of downtown, and it encompasses the end, or deep parts, of Elm Street, Commerce Street, and Main Street. At the turn of the century, that's 1900, this area was a mostly industrial district where the central track of the Houston and Central Texas Railroad crossed Elm Street, and it was home to the Munger Cotton Gin Factory and a Ford Model T assembly plant, as well as nearly all of the pawn shops in the, in the city. In the 1910s, however, the area quickly developed into a shopping, dining, and entertainment district that developed to serve the African-American enclaves known in the 19th century as Freedman Towns that had grown up along the Central Track. As the terminus point for the Central Track, workers from the Plano, McKinney, and Sherman cotton fields would come in at night and on weekends to join the city folk and converge on Elm Street to what became the Black Downtown and later the Harlem of Dallas. Uh, This is according to several contemporary accounts. The only place where black-owned and operated businesses existed unsegregated in the city was Deep Ellum. Soon this area became known as Deep Ellum, which Ellum is a corruption of the word Elm. And this became the place to be. It was where African Americans could dine and shop, where they could go to see a movie at the Harlem Theater. They could drink and listen to music at places like the Gypsy Tea Room, Cotton Club, the Palace, and many other places. A blues and jazz scene like no other soon developed in Deep Ellum. Legendary blues musicians like Alex Moore, Robert Johnson, Lead Belly, and Blind Lemon Jefferson came through or lived here. Blind Lemon and Lead Belly, who began playing in Dallas in 1912, wrote songs about life in Deep Ellum, and the most famous was Deep Ellum Blues. In later years, jazz and blues greats Ray Charles, Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, Count Basie would all play in Deep Ellum, as well as country swing and honky-tonk greats Ernest Tubbs and Jimmy Rogers. Deep Ellum was popular with some white patrons, especially those from the wrong side of society, such as poor workers, musicians, and outlaws. Pretty Boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde were frequent visitors to the Deep Ellum nightlife, which became well-known for its gambling, drugs, prostitution, and other crime. Deep Ellum remained vibrant and vital through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, especially to Dallas's black community. But in the 1950s, plans were made to create a large freeway through Dallas, and that led to the towns in the north. Central Expressway was built in the 1950s, and the land was taken largely along the path where the city already had eminent domain, which was the central track line. Black neighborhoods, Springtown, North Dallas, Freemantown, and the larger part of the black businesses that made up Deep Ellum were destroyed to make way for the freeway. 
Deep Ellum was cut off from downtown, and most of what remained was pawn shops, some factories, like the Ford Assembly plant that became the Adam Hatz factory from the 1950s to the 1970s. By 1981, almost all the businesses were closed and buildings sat empty. In the early 80s, though, local businessmen began buying up abandoned property in Deep Ellum as investments. Uh, they hoped to eventually renew the area. By this time in the early 80s, there was there were some other area music scenes, but nothing was ever concentrated anywhere. Live music in Texas was largely focused on Austin or in Fort Worth or in the college town of Denton, which is just north of Dallas, and they had a few music clubs here and there. In Dallas, there were some rock clubs over on Greenville Avenue and in Cedar Springs, while there were some underground punk clubs such as D- DJs, the Bijou, the Hot Club, Studio D, and the Twilight Room, which both of those are near but not in Deep Ellum. And there were some heavy metal clubs like the, hev- the, the Basement, which existed in the 1980s. But in 1985, cheap rent and the large spaces drew in those people that were seeking an eclectic alternative lifestyle, and the theater gallery opened in a warehouse on Commerce Street as an artist and performance space for underground and independent musicians in the area. Soon there was other clubs and bars and shops that opened up in the area to cater to this rapidly growing and eclectic scene. Among those clubs were the Profit Bar, Club Clearview, and Club Dada. The music community developed brought regional and national attention. It featured bands such as Three on a Hill, Four Reasons Unknown, Ten Hands, and there was the theater gallery sound guy, Jim Heath, who performed as the Reverend Horton Heat. The breakout stars of this period were Edie Brickell and New Bohemians, who released a top 10 album in 1988. Russell Hobbs, the owner of Theater Gallery and The Profit Bar, as well as a local singer and talent booker Jeff Lyles, started a record label. They helped to produce a compilation album for Island Records called The Sound of Deep Ellum. The clubs in the area constantly struggled financially and were often in trouble with the city or the state over codes and regulation violations, and they had to deal with crime and local skinheads. In 1988, the Profit Bar had burned down and the theater gallery was closed as Hobbs had gone through a religious conversion. The music scene continued, however, with new bands and new clubs coming through the 1990s, the most famous being Trees in 1990. That's right, Mike. And when the 1991 release of Nirvana's Nevermind took alternative music into the mainstream, Deep Elm suddenly became the best place for young Dallasites to hear the most popular music of the day. Ironically, Nirvana had been booked to play Trees in 1991, just after the release of Nevermind. They played a show to a beyond-capacity crowd, and which degenerated into a fight between Kurt Cobain and a bouncer, and sparked a near riot. In addition to the suddenly popular grunge bands coming through the Deep Ellum clubs, longtime local bands again attracted national attention, and new bands from Dallas, Denton, and other DFW suburbs became hot, garnering major label deals. Tripping Daisy, Course of Empire, The Toadies, The Nixons, Deep Blue Something... Reverend Horton Heat and Hagfish all received major label record deals. The group Baboon was featured on a 1993 episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, filmed in Deep Ellum. And several of our friends actually saw that episode being filmed when they went down there on a tour. Clubs began to open in the area for other music styles besides alternative, such as the reggae club Dread and Ari, as well as swing club and jazz restaurant Zambuca and dance club Lizard Lounge, which featured a weekly goth and industrial night. The free weekly newspaper, The Dallas Observer, was a resident of Deep Ellum and a key supporter in its music scene, as were local radio stations KDGE and KNON. From the beginning of the scene, though, there was an embrace of the area's history. There was a bar that was attached to Club Clearview that was named for Blind Lemon Jefferson, and it opened on the corner where he reputedly performed at. In 1998, a large space at the end of Deep Ellum near the former Profit Bar opened, and it was named after the famed Gypsy Tea Room of the 1930s. 
In the early 2000s, though, a combination of the demise of local rock radio and the post-9-11 recession forced several clubs to close and contributed to the steady decline of local bands. Live music clubs began to be replaced with dance and hip-hop clubs, and these combined with increased cruising activity created a racially and socially tense situation. Crime increased dramatically and drove the music community almost completely away. By 2006, all of the former live music clubs were either closed or were going through bankruptcy. Uh, Once again, the Deep Ellum scene was considered dead, and there was only a few restaurants, tattoo parlors, and some bars that clung, clung to life. But in 2007, Deep Ellum once again began a resurrection. The extension of the Dallas Light Rail, or DART, into Deep Ellum drastically reduced traffic and parking congestion. There was an increased police presence, which prevented much of the cruising, and the city rezoned the area to require businesses to have special use permits, which essentially allowed the city to control what restaurants, bars, and clubs could and could not open in the area. Finally, there was a new urban movement that reached Deep Ellum, and the buildings began converting to lofts and apartments, including the Adam Hatz building. And then in 2010, a number of the closed clubs, such as Club Dada, the Green Room, and the Legendary Trees, reopened. Russell Hobbs, who had started the scene 25 years before, was able to move his previously all-ages Christian club, The Door, from the edge of Deep Ellum to the former Gypsy Tea Room at Maine and Good Latimer, renaming it The Profit Bar and even holding a reunion of many of the old bands from the theater gallery and profit bar days in 2011. And these changes allowed a more open and safe environment for businesses, especially those catering to the quote-unquote foodie culture, to revitalize the area and stimulate growth. Uh, Restaurants like Local and Twisted Root, along with the longtime eateries All Good Cafe, Cafe Brazil, and Deep Sushi, Bakeries, wineries, cheese and meat retailers, and other shops and stores are helping to give Deep Ellum a daytime character to go with its nightlife and its history. And I'll just say here that prior to this revitalization, I, uh, I used to work down there off the very end of Deep Ellum, past Sons of Herman Hall. That was where the office was that I worked in. And during the day there, it was a ghost town. I mean, it was old. Most A lot of businesses were closed. You couldn't really go anywhere. I mean, the only place that had any kind of traffic was the subway uh, sandwich shop, not actual subway. Um, I guess about the last year or so that I was working down there, they started the construction on uh, the dart station and they filled in the tunnel there on Good Latimer and started all of that. So I was kind of witnessed the beginnings of this reawakening of the area. I think that's a fantastic story of the history of Deep Ellum. Now would be a great time for us to go around the table and share some of our personal memories and experiences in Deep Ellum. We all started school in UT Dallas in 1993, and it was about that time, 93, 94, when we started going down to Deep Ellum and seeing shows there. And one of the bands that we really liked to go see was the band Hagfish that Scott mentioned earlier. This was a punk band. They wore suits. They played real high-energy shows. When we first started going there, people would spit on them. Uh, so there was kind of a crazy scene this, uh, coming from a small town. I'd never really seen anything like that, this alternative scene, the punks and everything. But uh, I think I saw them maybe 10 or 12 times over the course of the years. It was just really neat to be able to go down just about every weekend. And even if you weren't going down to see someone specific, there was something to do down there. And it was a lot of fun. It was always kind of sketchy. Uh, to park, you know, if you didn't want to pay for parking, you kind of had to park it a little bit away and kind of had to walk there through the dark. But uh, it was always a lot of fun, I thought, just to see the scene. We were too cheap to pay for parking, so we would park way down off the end of the drag by a butcher shop. I was always afraid that someone was going to break into the car or 
assault us as we return yeah, to it. Was it was usually my car. So. Yeah. 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 Right. We'd walk by the Rasta Man place and that was that was down there that we would park by. Yeah. It's true what you say because there was always a great rock show. You know, I wasn't I liked live music. I liked the experience of going to these great clubs and they were fantastic clubs at the time. They were just great experiences. An interesting note for me was probably a little later, around ninety nine or so, we were at Club Clearview and it was part of they were trying to get people down with their deep Fridays, which was where you could pay one cover and you could go to multiple clubs. We were at Club Clearview and Club Clearview had several clubs that were connected. And I remember we were passing from one club to the next and I swore that I heard Weezer music. But this was at the time before the Weezer Green album. They had done Pinkerton and they'd kind of gone away. So those of us who liked Weezer didn't hear it. But I hear this music of Weezer and I go in and I see this first show of a cover band called Wiener that was made up by from people from Chomsky and Baboon and a couple other local bands. So because of that, I then stayed and watched the Chomsky show. They were a fantastic. They won all of the Dallas Observer Band of the Year awards for two or three years running. They had a couple of different record deals. It was just one of those interesting things that you could stumble into something great. And the next show, I think we all went to to see Wiener. It was at the club Clearview, and and in the club, I saw the the lead singer and the drummer from Hagfish, and they were arguing, yelling at each other. And I think that was right about the time that they probably broke up. So we get to see the demise of our favorite band in front of us. One of the things that I liked about Deep Ellum is Dallas is not New York City or L.A. We didn't, you know, we don't have like the whiskey or the CBGB or any of that stuff. But to us, it was like that's our place right it's like that's our music scene that's that's the place we would go to see all the rock bands and you know some of them made it big you know I remember seeing Tripping Daisy before they were a national act and you know before he went on to create Polyphonic Spree it's like we could go there and be like hey we're part of something you know this is going to be big they're going to hit it big and we're part of the start of all that the Dallas music scene was really something that at the time we felt we were a part of something big for us in our generation and i know we sound like a lot of old men talking about this but when we came into high school we came into high school it was sort of the death of hair metal and the birth of grunge and then when we came into college there was this magical time that just sort of happened in dallas where alternative music really took off and you had a lot of big hits and a lot of big bands and we were part of that scene and it was just you could wander in and see these things happening. While this was a great time in our lives and, and it was a great time in music, really when you think about it and you look into the history, it's really the 1920s and 30s that have the most historically significant factor in American music because a lot of American blues and jazz came out of this deep alum environment. And Blind Lemon Jefferson is a legend in the blues scene. Even from those early days up through the 80s and then now again in the early 2000s, Deep Ellum has gone through these cycles, and every time it gets remade, it's different, but it's still got that original character that it always had of entertainment and the nightlife. And even though it's going through very literally gentrification, I mean, there's a dark light rail there, there's brand new apartments, lofts, you know, it's families, being, <laughs> families, yeah. it's being gentrified. It's very middle class and feel now, but it is a place where you can still go and experience this live music and this culture. And now you can go there during the day, too. And I'll say this about Deep Ellum. If you look at the history, going back to the very beginnings of what this area was, it's kind of a magical place. And that even though the city and regulations and culture and things happen and it gets destroyed it builds itself back in a new and different way and then it kind of goes dormant and it comes back and i think that we look at this idea of this gentrification 
but it's a magical place, and I think it's, there's always going to be something to to be deep elm and what it represents to us. You can build a freeway through the middle of it and bulldoze eight blocks. It will still be deep elm, And it's still going to always have that funky character. And we we had a good story about the funky character of deep elm. <laughs> the, oh, the daytime one, yeah. Yeah. When we were in college, two friends of ours, uh, a girl and a guy, decided that he wanted to get a tattoo, and she was going to have her tongue pierced. So Sean and I, being good friends and having nothing to do that day in the middle of the week... And having a car. Got in our car, and we drove down to Deep Ellum. We parked. We went to the tattoo shop. They went in. We freaked out, and Sean and I walked down to the All Good Cafe. We had a sandwich and... A cup of coffee. And- sandwich, cup of coffee. We played checkers for 30 minutes, and turns out he didn't get a tattoo. He got his tongue pierced, too, and we got in the car, and it was a lot of... No, 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 on the drive home. Didn't get infected... I think it got infected, too. It might have got infected. (laughs) And I recall another time, Sean, that we went down there one evening for a night of entertainment, and it was very crowded. Might have been a deep Friday. I don't remember. No, it was before that. It was was, was like 1995. There was some some sort of disturbance on the street. It was in front of the Galaxy Club, which which had its cycles of going through times where there was punks sometimes and skinheads other times. So we observed some police officers beginning to uh, you know resolve the situation, and I distinctly remember a policeman removing his weapon from the holster, and you started to move towards the fight, and we were all Sean. Well, let's go away from the riot, please. To be fair, it was like two blocks away, so we weren't in any real danger. We were much closer than two blocks. (laughs) (laughs) Sean is old, and his memory is no good anymore. I was fascinated by this this example of uh, of Dallas uh, Dallas police in action. So I wanted to see what was going to happen. Time to leave. Time to leave. Time to leave. Yes. So we did walk back to the car. Well, that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm Mr. Java. And I'm at Mac Sean. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>